When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. It's another week. Welcome, everybody. I'm David Campbell, sports manager at Cleveland.com, joined, as always, by Terry Pluto, award-winning columnist, sports writer, author. Terry, how are you doing this week? I'm well, David. You did not have to deal with the long trip out to L.A. for the game. So that was a good no, thing. That's it. I will be on. on the road for pretty much all the rest except the Green Bay on Christmas Day. So because um, that is um, oh, I'm being Christmas. We are booked always on Christmas Day to do ministry at the Haven Arrest. So there's that one. And so you're uh, the rest of your staff. You could arm them with uh, sled dogs and sleighs and send them up to Green Bay on Christmas. <laughs> to the frozen tundra. That's yeah. right. All right. So let's talk Browns. I'm always fascinated in how fans react after mm-hmm. a game. And last week's narrative, which we talked about, was is Baker Mayfield any good? Is he a franchise quarterback? And this week's narrative seems to be why can't Baker produce a game winning drive when the Browns need it? Um, where do you stand on Baker at this point? Well, first of all, let's divide up into Baker is no good. Baker is good. Baker is an elite quarterback. You know, there's three different things. Last week it was Baker's just no good or he's really hurt. And I think what this game did was a, it obviously is some sort of a problem, but it's not that big a deal. You know, and I wrote that over the weekend, not there, that said that this is what the Browns believed and I talked to somebody whose job it was to go through that film several times. And he, and he even told me a couple of plays. He goes, go back and look at him. Guys are like wide open. He's not just firing them over the head. And it wasn't just Demetric Felton on that one where he heaves it downfield or, or no, I, I think that time he ran. There's another time where Felton's wide open and he heaves it downfield to like nobody. He just, it was like, we all have days on the job where, you know, our brains just stayed in bed or something. And that was what was going on with him that day. Unfortunately, when you only work 16 days a week, or in this case, 17, uh, you can't have any of those. So that was, that's what happened. So I think where we're at, David, is, and this is where I've been for a long time, Baker's a good quarterback. And he's got to take the next, the next step if he wants to be considered him on the elite and get his big uh, payday, right? Yes, or he'll get paid like Carson Wentz and Jared Goff and Jimmy Garoppolo anyway. By the way, I mentioned those three because those are three guys, and I sent you a list of quarterbacks you would be surprised who recently, we're not talking about 1984 or, you know, 1967, you know, in the last few years, 
uh, we get the whole list there, uh, David. Yeah, yeah. You want to run through yeah. it real fast? Yeah, 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 real. Go ahead. So we're not counting the last Super Bowl, which was Brady and Mahomes, obviously. But yeah. uh, the year before that, Jimmy Garoppolo, the 49ers. The year before that, Jared Goff got the Rams there. The year before that, Nick Foles and Carson Wentz. Uh, we all know that how that went with the Eagles. Year before that, 2017, Matt Ryan, and the year before that, Cam Newton, um, who you could argue was an elite quarterback at at his peak. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think of that list, and how does Baker fit into that? The interesting thing is a couple of them who made that are actually running the same offense that Stefanski is, which was the uh, Rams and also the 49ers. And I would argue I would take Baker over Jimmy G, and I would take him over Jared Goff. So I mean, that's fair. I, I, you know, it's it's a product of you have to have a good quarterback to get to the Super Bowl, okay? But you don't have to have a great quarterback. You'd like to have a great quarterback, but it's hard. Now I want to see like the rest of the fans. Baker play better at the games, but it's just. I will not fall into the narrative that when you are the first team in NFL history to score more than 40 points, but 500 yards on the ground and zero turnovers. And I think there's like 200 and some other teams that did that and they all won and your team lost. So therefore it's the quarterback. So you don't agree with what Brandon Staley was saying after the game, when he was talking about how that one ended about how you need in these days of high scoring last minute drives, you need an elite quarterback to pull off a game winning drive. You, you don't subscribe to that. You think the Browns can get where they're going, even if Mayfield doesn't reach that kind of ultra ultra. Yes. Level. I mean, it's, it's kind of like, would you rather have, you know, a guy who throws 97 miles an hour and has all four pitches in his bag, you know, like Garrett Cole when he's at his best or whatever, or do you have a pitcher who's pretty good, you know, with a really good team, you know, we're at the level I put up a, a picture just because I actually I was just looking for Deshaun Kaiser to put up for on my Facebook page where I that's where I get the hate Terry questions. And the first one that popped up was Deshaun Kaiser and Cody Kessler. Now that's when you're in trouble. <laughs> the dynamic, or, dynamic duo. Yeah. Or you're trying to rehab, you know, even go back to when they brought in Jeff Garcia in here, you know, Johnny Manziel. And there are so many quarterbacks around the league. Um, that just bounce around and keep getting jazzed because there's only a I'm, I'm developing this theory and people think I get stuck on kickers, but I think they're like elite kickers and like elite quarterbacks. There's only about six or eight of them. <laughs> and, and if you got one, keep it. But otherwise you, you run into trouble with that. So um, by the way, Cody Parkey's back. Did you see that? Indeed. Yes. He, He's with the saints. He'll always be with us in one way or another. So he could end up back here too. You never know. <laughs> He's been here twice. Absolutely. Hey, so I got to ask you about yes. this whole Baker OBJ thing is getting to just be really weird. And, and it is weird. And and the other day at the end of the game, Browns are trying to march for the game winning touchdown and Rashard Higgins runs deep. Baker uh, is, throws it to Rashard Higgins. And if you look at the film, even on the TV footage, you can mm-hmm. see OBJ is running wide open, probably about 25 yards down the field on a crossing route. Nobody near him. And Baker, once again, didn't see him. And, you know, yes, it happened with Felton the week before where Baker didn't see a wide open Demetri Felton, but this OBJ thing keeps happening and happening. And I, I know at the end of the game, OBJ sat on the bench for a little while by himself, was dejected. Um, what is the deal with these guys and, and why does this keep happening? You have any theories? Well, a couple of things. One is I've been in the, you know, don't get fixated on OBJ or whatever, but if you're going to force the ball to OBJ, 
that is the time to force the ball to OBJ. I'm not, you know, whether he's open or not, you're in this last drive, you got to cover all this ground quickly. He is the guy you just heave it up there and tell him, try to go make a play, even if he's double covered. So I found that baffling. That's you, even you thought they should have sw- they should have switched routes or one one move to the X and one move to the Z or whatever. So yeah, OBJ is running the deep route. Yeah. Yeah. And just say, or in general, all right, you know, we're gonna try to win it with you. And if we lose it, we lose it. That's fine. I don't mind forcing the ball to a great player when times are desperate. It's kind of like when a power hitter comes to the plate. Yeah, he strikes out a lot, but there's two outs in the ninth. You're down two to one, and there's a guy on first base swing for the fences. You know, this is the time to, to, to try and, and hit the home run. Well, this is the time to hit the – I don't know what Kevin's play calling was. That whole last drive was, was odd. Um, by the way, I get an interesting email from a fan who said, you know, Kevin Stefanski often says that, you know, I, I'd like to have some plays back or whatever. Well, doesn't that indicate it's time to give the play calling to, uh, to Van Pelt? What do you think when he says that? David, what he says. I think that um, so Kevin's Stef- the way Kevin Stefanski is wired with his background, he doesn't feel that this is just my take on it. He doesn't feel like you can, you've got, you know, 53 guys on the roster. They're out there knocking themselves out trying to win a game. And it's, he doesn't think it's his position as a head coach to say, well, I did everything right, but they didn't execute it. You know, I don't think he feels like that's the right way to lead a team. And so you always hear when they lose and even when they win, he'll say, I wish I had a few plays back. And And I will Let's stay with me on that. A, you're right. But I think there's a point B. See what you think of this. How many if you run 60 plays a game, 60 decisions you make. There's certainly going to be a couple after that game, win or lose, where you go, boy, I could have done better with that one. I think the difference is uh, most coaches don't want to kind of get stuck in those weeds. Um, he, I think he does that to let the players know he's accountable, but he doesn't realize that sometimes fans, well, if he didn't think he could do it, let the other guy do it. Yeah. Well, I, I think that if you watch during the game, there's body language you get, you can see Bill yeah. Callahan speaking into the headset, giving him mm-hmm. thoughts. And you can imagine that, that Alex Van Pelt's doing the same thing. But the one thing I can tell you that that did happen was, and Stefanski even hinted at this, the pass interference non-call that yeah. happened distracted Stefanski yes. to the point where he feels like he blew the next play call because he was still tied up with the officials trying to figure out why they, that wasn't called. And I think that was the, that was the really the one call he wanted back in a big way. He felt like, and you know, Kevin Stefanski, we saw more emotion out of him yeah. during that last game than we've ever seen. Mm-hmm. And when you look at that pass interference that didn't get called, he completely got pulled into that. What the heck? Why didn't that get called? And by the time he got back to call in the play, I think he just went with what was maybe there on the sheet instead of like having the full amount of time to think it through. That was just my take on it. But Oh, I think you're right. And he owned, owned that. Um, I remember I asked uh, Pat Shermer once about play call because he kind of had both systems where, you know, he was the play caller in his first year with the Browns. He was doing everything. In fact, he didn't even have a guy with a title offensive coordinator. Second year, they brought in Brad Childress, who actually was sort of a mentor to him, to Shermer. So he said what really worked better, he found, is Shermer makes all the play. I mean, sorry, uh, Childress would make all the play calls. And he goes, I would be on the headset and maybe I would change five or six a game during it. 
He said, so it was start up. And then he goes, I put Brad upstairs, start upstairs with him so that that way, if I'm off, you know, into something else, we're still operating pretty well. And I kind of like that. Um, and that maybe would have helped. Now, maybe the Browns are doing that anyway. We don't know because they never like to pull the curtain back. Um, but Shermer was telling me that because w- it was towards the end of his second year. And I said, one of the things I just noticed, Pat, that you really improved was uh, the sideline operation and things just seemed smoother. And he told me that's why. Hmm. Well, the one thing about Stefanski, he's not one of these guys where his entire identity is no. wrapped up in play calling. I mean, Jim Tressel would anytime anybody asked him about this at Ohio State, he's like, play calling is why one reason I love doing this job. Like, you're not, yeah. I don't want to give that up. And I don't get the sense that Stefanski's from that same school where he defines himself as a play caller. And if he can't do it, it's the job is no fun to him. I don't get the sense that, that it's that near and dear to him, but who knows? Oh, interesting thing. If you do, all right, how many games actually has he been the play caller for? And I'll, we'll walk through it. It was three in 2018 at Minnesota. The next year, 16. So we're at um, 19 games. I think there's a playoff game in there. So we'll throw up to, up to 20. Then he came to the Browns and they had 18 games kind of the playoffs. So we're at 38. And then you add in five more. That's 43. That's not even three full NFL seasons. And remember, he didn't do anything in college or whatever. So as a play caller, I mean, he's really about as inexperienced as uh, probably like his quarterback. And that I think they're still growing. Mm-hmm. Well, it might change. You never know. I mean, yeah. heck, last year he watched a playoff game from his basement and Alex Van Pelt called every play. So Yeah, the, fa- the fans <laughs> keep saying and say they scored 4,000 points and they yeah. had to do it so again. Send them back to the basement. I don't know. I don't mean that. I think he's a big believer in if we put our heads together, we're going to get this right. And who actually yeah. decides what the final play is, is not. I, I think you're right. I think it's something that is um, that, that could change down the road. You never know. And the great thing for him is he does have Callahan and he does have Van Pelt right there. And I think that's why, for the most part, we've not seen too much of what we saw in that one play there where things got out of control or things got lost. Because those are guys he trusts where I'm sure some coaches, part of the reason they call plays, they just didn't, you know, they, they threw their staff together. There isn't a guy that um, I remember when Hugh Jackson, remember when he took the play calling back or whatever he did there. It's like, well, if I'm going to go down, I'm going to go down and call my own plays. Yeah. I don't think that's, 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 that's the you, opposite that's, of what Kevin Stefanski thinks. Yeah, that is the, so I don't see that either. Yeah. So we'll, we'll take a break here in a minute, Terry. I wanted to get your thoughts. So the, the injuries have really piled up on yes. this team, both before last week's game and then even heading into this week's game against the Cardinals, the 405 kick Sunday down at First Energy Stadium. Um, you know, Jadavian Clowney, Greg Newsom, the second greedy Williams, Denzel Ward, Jarvis Landry, Jedrick, Jedrick Wills, Jr. Jack Conklin, both sides of the ball are getting hit. Are you, are you more concerned about the defense or the offense or both defense, going into defense, Sunday's game? Defense, mm-hmm. defense. I don't know how many times I could say defense because at the start of the year, you know, even when they were looking at the roster, I kept blowing on the secondary because I believe defensive backs are like pitchers and the old line, when you think you have enough, go get more. And they seem to just get hurt. We've seen it year after year here and they're hurt again, especially when you have two young guys with injury histories, which you have ingredient and sell. And the fact that I have to admit, I'll be interested to see how this thing plays out with Clowney, what he's warming up. And that was his knee. I didn't yep. like hearing that. And I know Clowney wants to play. It's not, uh, 
Like he just want, he's on a one-year contract. So these last couple of years, he's not had the market he thought he was going to have. So he knows it's important for him to play, for him to pull himself out. The knee's bothering him. So you defensive and defensive backs bother me more. I mean, I want to see one of the tackles get back. That's harder. But I just think you could – and they scored 42 points anyway. Go back to that. You know, Even in the fourth quarter when Conklin was out, they scored 15. No, that's true. And I, I get the sense a little By bit By the too- way, in one context, and I, I know I'm interrupting, but it's, yeah. it's my thing. The Chargers had not allowed more than 24 points in any game. So, I mean, just, I, I'm like, okay, yeah, you can nitpick the offense. It's a lot more fun, whatever. But it's like saying, gee, you know, you got a cold and, you know, you, you, you got the fever going and the shiver. But really the problem is somebody cut your leg off. <laughs> <laughs> and it's the same thing here. When you don't stop anybody ever, it's like you can't move. And so they better get this, not just the um, – uh, the defense in general, the communication thing. Uh, granted, one time you pointed out to me, I'm glad you did. You said it was, it was Delpit and A.J. Green messed it up on one of those Mike Williams ones. But the other, looking at it, it looks like it's Ronnie Harris and a John Johnson. Mike Williams, he's a big guy. He's six foot four. He's their one deep threat. I get it if it's like some fullback something or uh, a nondescript tight end that you don't cover and he ends up, the coverage breaks down. But you don't lose Mike Williams twice. No, that's for sure. I mean, it's like, what do they say in baseball? You want to build a team up the middle on defense. You want to start by not giving up 80 yard plays. <laughs> like that is yeah. step number one in the Browns. Uh, and the Browns you know, who's good, probably them. watching tapes of that and screaming at the thing, Greg Williams, they that's made right. fun of me for having a guy 45 <laughs> yards behind the line of scrimmage. Well, that garbage never happened, which would be the nicest thing you would say when I was a coach. <laughs> that's right. That's right. All right. So we're going to take a break here, Terry. We'll come back. We'll talk a little bit of Cavs, a little bit of Guardians. we got a few Hey Terry questions. And um, I have a trivia question for you as usual. So we'll be right back. Uh, Terry's talking. David Campbell and Terry Pluto back on this week's edition of Terry's Talking. We're going to get into the Cavaliers here. The Cavs open their season. I can't believe it's starting already. It's 80 degrees out this week, and the Cavs are already playing basketball for real next Wednesday, the 20th. They're playing at Memphis in their season opener, and then they open the home season next Friday, the 22nd, against Charlotte. That one's at 7 o'clock down at the Fieldhouse. Um, Terry, Evan Mobley is getting rave reviews so far. It's only preseason, but just the way he's been playing, the work he's been putting in to improve his, his shooting outside the paint. Chris Fedor, our colleague, has been writing about it. I think he's putting up 103 pointers a day before and after practice, extra shots so that he can in, increase his range and really stretch the floor for the Cavs. Um, what do you think of him so far, and, and what do you see for him early in the season? What are you expecting to see from him? Well, it's good that he works on his shooting, but that's not that's way down the list for me on, on why I like Mobley, and, and I like him more than in, in the draft because I – I liked uh, Suggs from Gonzaga. That's who I wanted the cast to take because I thought he was going to be a really good NBA player. Apparently, he has played very well, by the way, for Orlando, too. Suggs has. Nonetheless, uh, Mobley uh, is a unique player. I could see it now. Uh, his ability to move sideways. Uh, in the Sunday, I compared him to a young Larry Nance senior, who I'm old enough to have seen play with Clemson. It was 1978, which, okay, immediately a bunch of people. I was a young writer in Greensboro, and I was assigned to 
back then nobody wanted to drive down to Clemson from Greensboro, especially in the winter. Cause you had to go there. So I, they sent me down to this game and it was Carolina was playing and I had never heard of Larry. This was like, I think he's a sophomore just starting that. And I'm watching this game and there's this tall, like you see Mobley kind of like blocking shots and good defensively kind of raw on offense. I'm looking up, who is this guy? And it was Larry Nance from Anderson, South Carolina, which by the way, is right by Clemson. So I always kind of kept that in mind. And, you know, I was like, now I'm, you know, I'm playing like Red Arbach or something. I, I got my guy here. And it ends up, of course, he goes to the NBA. And the, the, the Larry Nance we saw here by then was very polished. You know, he had developed that kind of shot, a mid-range shot. And, but the, the shot blocking, the ability to move. But I wrote that. And then another guy, a fan, wrote me. And it's correct. He said he thought it was more like a young Hot Rod Williams. The same thing. That, that six foot eleven guy who could jump out and guard small forwards. Um, and just unselfish and that's high praise when you get guys like that. And if he could develop the three pointer, I know he made one the recent in a preseason game, but I'm like, right now, I really don't care a whole lot. I mean, it's, it's fine for him to shoot afterwards, but that's why they got marketing that to have some tall guys shoot from, you know, half court or wherever they want to fire these things from these days, but he's exciting. And I think he's exciting because he can play center. He could play, uh, power forward or you know at times even some small forward and he so, just seems by the way ball handling passing pretty good pretty good yeah it's 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 a new era really i mean yeah. you look at i know that um and, and chris fior wrote about this too about how ricky rubio he won't be in the starting lineup you know and they're saying they're going to give him starters minutes but probably one of the, the biggest acquisitions they could have made this offseason is just getting someone to stabilize that backup point guard spot but i mean we're talking about ricky rubio coming off the bench and these young guys i mean i think you you added it up 21.7 years old yeah. all the starting lineup for the Cavs is going to be it's really a, a, a new era in terms of veterans coming off the bench and the young guys are going to start for this team and that's how they're going to roll out it'll be interesting what will happen if they have where they keep getting down by 10, 15 points in the first quarter with all those kids. So then do you mix it up? I mean, do you go with Rubio and Garland in the backcourt and bring Sexton off the bench? You know, that kind of thing, because Rubio certainly stabilizes all this stuff and he doesn't have to shoot the ball. Um, I th that That's a really good acquisition. Um, I'm interested to see how it works with Kevin Love off the bench. I have no clue. I'm not, tremendously optimistic about it but um, if he wants to be traded or, or have value there's reasons for him to play well uh, but when you look at what Mobley can really help them defensively I, they need an identity you know the little bit of winning they did which is it feels like it's a lot longer than that but it was actually the start of last year remember when they had Drummond and Larry Nance Jr. Uh, that suddenly became an, a tough team that rebounded um, and they were playing around 500 with those guys before they got Jared Allen. How about Jared Allen and Mobley should be able to help the team have some defensive identity around the rim. Um, so we'll, we'll see what it is. You know, we've mentioned, I'm not going to dwell on it, but the league is between the great players between six foot three and six foot nine. And the Cavs don't have too many of those guys. Yep. It's going to be an interesting when they when they match up against some teams. Who's going to be guarding who? There's going to be some tough matchups night for them. So so Terry, we're going to uh, we're going to hit you up for a prediction next week on next okay. week's podcast. So give that some thought in terms of how many games you think the, the Cavs will win this season, and we will do that next week. So, all right, the Guardians playoffs are moving along. 
the time after the World Series is going to be really important for the Guardians in terms of um, picking up some options, um, mm-hmm. making some decisions. Uh, you know, it's a pretty important time. It's, it's right after the end of the, of the season. Um, Jose Ramirez and Roberto Perez are two guys that they're going to need to make. No, Jose is a no-brainer, obviously. Yeah. But, uh, how do you think the Roberto Perez decision might fall? There's no way they're giving him $7 because they think nobody else will give him $7 million. So they may offer him a chance to come back. I, you know, with me, and I was a big proponent of Roberto Lecton, but he can't stay healthy. You know, it's a couple years in a row. Uh, and you need to get a, another catcher, whether you think uh, – La Vista is ready. Bowdenay or La Vista probably aren't. They're probably going to, those are their top catching prospects. They're probably going to have to go get a veteran just to play behind Hedges. Um, I know Hedges. Hedges is really one of the worst regular big league hitters I've ever seen. He's just <laughs> terrible. But what he, 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 you could just tell he is, they always talk about a glue guy. He is a glue guy behind the plate and he does. And he has a great attitude, um, you know, on the bench and, and, it's just the kind of guy Frank Kona really likes. So, and he could throw and all that stuff. So that that's, that's a easy one. And for me, Perez goes, unless he wants to play for, I don't know, a million and a half or something, you know, something very low, but oftentimes when you do that with a player, he'll, he'll go somewhere else for a big pay cut, but he doesn't want to stay at your team. And you get an attitude problem with that. You have to be careful. Football, they'll do it more often than in baseball where they'll handle a pay cut. Yeah, so we'll probably see him sign with somebody else for the same money the Indians might offer him, but it's just a new start. And yeah, yes, that, that way you could always say I need a fresh start. And then what would you, of course, Jose gets picked up. Um, the difficult thing or interesting thing is guys out of minor league options coming up are Chang and Zimmer and Mercado right off the top of my head. There may be somebody else. Uh, do you put those guys, you know, obviously. I think Chang's going to be on the 40 man roster. They like him. The other two outfitters, I think at best one of them, maybe, maybe even both end up being traded or whatever before him. Because do you know that Jose Ramirez is only two months older than Bradley Zimmer? People forget that. Yeah. We keep saying prospect, yeah. prospect, prospect. Granted, Jose was young when he came up and, and that, but they're both burned down on 30 and, now one's Jose maybe, Ramirez and one isn't. <laughs> yeah. And maybe, you know, you turn around, you let Zimmer go like they did last year. Remember they gave up on Nick Naquin and he went and had a good year with the Reds on a minor league contract. So you never, I mean, there's always that possibility, but um, the, they're going to have to figure out because they have a lot of young pitchers and things. I know they don't want to lose. Well, yeah, and there's uh, and Paul Hoynes and Joe Noga on our um, Cleveland Baseball Talk podcast. We're talking about how j- just all these Rule Five guys too that they yeah, have that, are, that they're yeah. going to have to put on the 40-man roster. Like you said, they're going to have to make some decisions on some players that fans know to keep these Rule Five guys around. So um, remember this, time. and their analytics and common sense tells you: a) the hardest thing to develop is starting pitching, and b) the most expensive thing often to keep is starting pitching, because the, you factor in the injury uh, uh, things that come up. So therefore there, you know, Cody Morris, a guy that I've mentioned a couple of times and knows some people maybe haven't heard of, you know, he's going to be on the roster. They're going to keep a lot of these young starting pitchers uh, because they don't want to lose them. And, and they want to have a whole bunch of them and they'll work around finding some other outfitters like they always work around. Cause it'd be one thing if Zimmer came in there, and he had 18 homers and 300 at bats or something. And you say, okay, 
um, that guy. Now, Bradley's going to be the first baseman. Uh, they're going to live with the strikeouts and probably platoon him and Chang or something like that. And so we'll see if we go from there. I, by the way, what do you think about Reyes in the outfield? So? They've had worse. I mean, yes. really. And yes, he's a good enough athlete you. where he could do it. He's a good enough athlete where I think he might be able to pull it off. I'm not that, you know, it doesn't be that many games. He only played 11, but I, I, I've always been, I've been waiting to see this terrible outfielder and I haven't seen it. And, you know, he played a lot of games in the outfield for the Padres. They have no mm-hmm. DH over there when he's at 30 homers. Um, by the way, that you go back and look at that deal now. And granted, you know, obviously Trevor Bauer's got all kinds of legal problems, but even before that, you knew he wasn't coming back here and you knew he wasn't resigning with the Reds. So to come out of that, with Fran Mill Reyes and, you know, whether they, they got a couple other guys, you know, we'll see how they, they pan out. By the way, another pitcher I want to mention is not Logan Allen that we keep seeing. It's the Logan T Allen who had his first year in the, um, they drafted him. Now I don't think they have to protect him yet, but I was told that they think next year, Cody Alice, Co- I'm sorry, Cody, Cody Morris, Logan T Allen are two guys that we haven't seen yet that by midseason could end up being in a rotation, at least one of those two. They think these guys are high flyers, college pitchers coming fast. All right. Something to look forward to for Guardians fans in 2022. So, uh, hey, let's get into some Hey Terry questions here. So you put an Andrew Miller picture up on your yes. on your Hey Terry's uh, when you asked fans for questions today. Which So I've got an Andrew Miller trivia question at the end I'm going to ask you. It's not too hard. Um, so let's get into the questions. Hey, if you want to hit us with some questions for Terry's talking, you can send them to Terry on his Facebook page, or if you want to email him, send them into sports at cleveland.com. Pretty easy to remember sports at cleveland.com. And we will do our best to get it on the podcast. All right. The first one comes from Jesse Brown. What happens to Logan Allen, not Logan T Allen. What happens to Logan Allen and Eli Morgan next spring? Which one of the outfielders on the roster make it to spring training? So a little bit, what we were just talking about, but anything you want to add to, to that question? Yeah, and that Logan Allen, he's also out of option too. Too that um, I think they don't worry about him. Uh, if uh, somebody wants him, fine. If not, he can come to contract, come to thing in a, on a minor league contract. Oh, uh, they they see uh, Eli Morgan kind of like uh, Josh Tomlin. You know, this is this starter reliever throw strikes, very valuable. So. Um, two different, and boy, you talk about at the start of spring training a year, you know, a year ago, you know, Logan Allen was the rising star and, and Morgan was kind of a real afterthought. Um, so the big thing that was hard to judge this year is because there was no minor league baseball in 2020, you don't know who was helped by development and, you know, so it was hard to judge. No, Morgan's definitely in the plans and I, I don't see though, they kept trying to revive Logan Allen at the end of the year and it just didn't work. All right. Uh, next one is from, let's go to Mike Hicks. Mike wonders, should the guardians trade a starting pitcher, which one and a middle infielder prospect to get a corner outfielder with power. They desperately need some production and protection for Jose and Fran Mill. Yeah. I mean, you, you'd look at that. Um, I would not want to go into your three of Bieber, Plezak, and Savale, but there are minor league pitchers that people value, and and they certainly have enough middle infielders. Uh, I would look at that, but I would want it to be a player who would have two or three years of control too, not just a guy 
coming near and I haven't looked at that list. I know that uh, our baseball writers have been, uh, Paul and, and Noga have been doing that, but I forgot who they had on their list for outfielders. Yeah, and they can also, you know, obviously free agency is something that we've written about that they're gonna yeah, they're gonna take look a look at, at adding somebody. So we'll, there, are, there might be somebody it, out there. Somebody like you said, be, they can control for a couple of years and get him at a middle middle range. Yeah, so they're I mean they, they want to find another mile straw. That's what they want to do, a guy like that, um, who's maybe stuck with a team with a, a lot of good outfielders and um, and they do have they have a number of, of young pitchers that uh, people like and um, bullpen arms. I mean, that they're feeling, that's why I remember they draft all these pitchers is that you could trade them. Always a commodity. That's for sure. All right, let's go to this one from Matthew Graham. He says, Hey, Terry, do you anticipate an MLB work stoppage this off season? The owners claim to always lose money, but yet the last few CBAs have been re-upped with very little negotiating issues, which tells me both sides are making money and they want to keep the gravy train rolling. What do you think? Well, there'll probably be something because these guys can't even agree, agree that today's Wednesday. <laughs> I mean, you saw that when the owners wanted to have the expanded playoff format again this year, like they did last year. And it's better for the players because they get more playoff money. And they said no anyway, because they want to keep as a negotiating play for the next agreement. And I think just because the owners want it, they don't. And this is a, you don't, you never hear them. You always hear the NBA talk about, oh, we're, we're in partnership with our players. Well, you never hear that out of baseball. But the other problem, David, is there are not just a few, but several owners are not real wild about making a big radical change to the economic uh, way is set up because they're willing to spend the money. You know, I would love to see a floor come in so you don't get teams. So, frankly, with the Indians pulled this year, this $50 million payroll, no, you can't do that. You know, you can't you can't have a $50 million payroll and get uh, revenue sharing. No, 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 we're not we're not having that. And by the way, I'm told the Indians will probably go up at least around 70 this year. We'll see what what happens after that. But, I, you know, probably something will come up. But in the end to uh, the re to the reader's point that there's a lot of money out here but they'll just be so nasty about it they're, they're so nasty about everything well, i mean they make we... you, they make you hate them both sides they really <laughs> do the one thing we do know is it's going to go to the very end and yes. they're going to push it as long as they can to get what they want so if history is any guide so all right, Terry, hey, I want to talk about your faith column this week. It was uh, a really interesting look. I know you do a lot of hiking with your, your wife, Roberta, and you guys um, come across some interesting old remnants of places. And I, I want to give you a minute to talk about that. I thought it was interesting the way you kind of made a metaphor between these old abandoned brick houses from the 1800s and kind of us. And like, you know, we're here on earth and like what happens to us after that. And I thought it was a really interesting metaphor you made there. So can you talk about that for a minute? Well, I was hurting for a faith column idea, which happens almost every week. And uh, so I'm hiking on a different trail in Cuyahoga Valley. It's called the Riding Run Trail. And suddenly I saw this like cement block just kind of near the trail. It's like a kind of a thing you put in a foundational house. And I'm like, huh, I kind of looked at it. And then I sort of looked over in the weeds and it just looked something strange. So I walked over there and there were these stone steps going up. And there was a hole in the ground. I suddenly realized this was a house here. You know, this was somebody's place. They lived here, not too far from the covered bridge and peninsula. 
And then if you walk around another trail over there, you'll see there's a, a chimney way off the trail and a, a kind of a fireplace. And this was somebody's idea to have a house by what was a real small river. Now, both of these are, you know, long gone. You kind of have to use your imagination. And I thought about, um, actually, I remember when my father died and the pastor put his hand on the uh, casket and he said, you know, Tom is not here anymore. His body is just a shell. You know, he's uh, with his father in heaven. And then, and then even there, like when we were hiking out in Arizona, uh, about 70 miles from Goodyear in this kind of remote place, it's not like where a lot of people go. It was an old gold mining area. And I found, and we've run pictures of this in the faith column of this old house. And then I kind of looked back there and it looked like there's this path going up. And so we went up there and then we found this old abandoned gold mine. And by the way, there was a river there so you, that was totally dry. You could tell this guy, I'm going to build this stone house by the river and I'm going to have a gold mine in the backyard and I am set. And I did some kind of look into history and it's like a bunch of people tried to make that work. But uh, there also is a metaphor too, for a lot of us to have dreams and sometimes the dreams don't work out, you know, and it's one of my other things. And I've heard it. I stole it from somewhere, you know, really you know, failure only becomes final when we quit. And, and that it's kind of one of those pithy things, but I kind of keep that in mind, you know, the people who don't quit or in the long run, usually don't fail. They may switch gears. They may switch houses. They may get out of the gold business. Uh, but there's something and those, those houses just kind of spoke to me. Yeah. And just another reminder. I, I loved how it was kind of a reminder of, um, enjoy the journey. Like the journey is the thing, you know, you're going to, yeah. you're going to, you're going to own things. You're going to live places, but like the journey itself is where you can find a lot of joy in life. So, you know, you tell stories and like, okay, a couple of times, you know, a lot of times I've gone off the trail on something, but I, I don't go real far. I wasn't too worried in Cuyahoga Valley, but some of these other places, you don't want to get lost out there. Um, and you want to keep your bearings, but my wife actually has hiked even more than I have. She's better on sense of direction than I am. And, but don't be afraid to go off the trail a little bit, see what you see. Yep. Another good metaphor. So uh, be sure to read that column Saturday on cleveland.com and then you'll find it in Sunday's plain dealer in the print edition. So we'll look forward to reading that um, this weekend. All right, Terry, I got a trivia question for you. So it seems like only yesterday that Andrew Miller was coming out of the bullpen and just yeah. wowing people and helping the Indians uh, get to game seven of the world series and almost win it. He's worn six different numbers in his 16-year Major League Baseball career, and he wore number 21 with the Cardinals this year. Can you remember what number Andrew Miller wore with the Indians in 2016? Because I was having a hard time remembering it. No idea. None. <laughs> and then it? when I saw it, I, I'm sure a lot of Indians fans can remember him coming out of the bullpen. You'd What's a single digit? It was, was not. It was number 24, and I could not remember it. And okay. then when I saw it, I'm like, ah. Oh, 24. Of course it was 24. So Miller, I will say is a great guy when they had Miller and Cody Allen, and both of them were willing to allow the other one to close. And Miller was on a multi-year contract. Cody Allen was not. And Allen just said, well, told Francona, if you want Andrew to close, I understand. But for the most part, they kept it. Remember they had the seven, eight, ninth going for a while with Shaw Miller and Allen. Then when it came into the playoffs World Series, Allen was like, I mean, Miller's allowed to pitch anytime. Um, so that, but they were just, just great guys. And Cody Allen was one of my favorites too. And boy, his arm just fell off. I mean, he, he's, he was out of baseball at 29 years old 
And that happens. They say, I forget that. Well, some of the Indians relievers, a lot of relievers kind of have that happen to them, you know, and Miller had arm problems before he came to Cleveland. He was originally a high draft pick and a starting pitcher. Yeah. And that was, um, that was the time when we hadn't really seen, like you said, relievers being just put in anytime in high leverage situations yeah. was what the baseball people called it. And he was really at the forefront of then the Indians were too, in terms of putting your a relief pitcher and who can get an out at a crucial time, not necessarily in the ninth with the bases empty. So really interesting time. So, well, Terry, great talking to you again. Um, we'll do it again next week. Um, anything you want to add before we sign off here? No, I just hope next week we're not having a Baker Mayfield discussion. How's that? <laughs> the Browns beat the Cardinals and something something else goes on that's good to talk about. Oh, yeah. I think it'll be another high-scoring game Sunday and definitely one worth watching. So have a great week, everybody. We'll catch you next week on Terry's Talking.